takeaways from the UN General Assembly, Typhoon Nauru, and an update on Malaysian politics. All this and more on today's episode of Southeast Asia Radio. I'm Andre Kanatsalagawa. Today is September 29, 2022. On today's show... It is an opportunity for Southeast Asian countries to think more creatively and innovatively about how they want to create their digital futures, what kind of standards they might want to contribute to as they chart their own paths in this digital economy landscape. That was Greg and Alina discussing data governance in Southeast Asia. We're so glad you've joined us here today, and I hope you're as excited for this topic as I am. But first, the headlines. Today, to help me read the headlines, we have Karen Lee in the studio. Karen, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So Karen has joined us in the Southeast Asia program as our new research associate. So again, excited to have you back here. Karen, what's happening in Southeast Asia? How about we start with the United Nations General Assembly, which was held in New York last week. President Ferdinand Bongbong Marcos Jr. not only made his first major speech before world leaders since assuming office in June, but was the first leader of the Philippines to address the UN General Assembly in person in more than a decade. Marcos Jr. called for a united effort to combat climate change, noting that it is the greatest threat facing various nations with its uneven effects reflective of historical injustice. He further called for climate financing from developed nations and stressed that these differences should be resolved through peaceful means and friendly foreign policy. Marcos Jr. also pushed countries to cut their carbon emissions and transfer climate adaptation technology to vulnerable nations. His call to action really hit home, as the region is weathering the most powerful typhoon of the year. Typhoon Noru, known in the Philippines as Typhoon Karting, hit the northern region of Luzon on Sunday, with landslides and floods displacing over 52,000 people. At the time of this episode's recording, Vietnam is bracing for Nauru. The government has evacuated more than 800,000 people, closed airports, imposed curfews, and placed the military on standby in anticipation of the typhoon. Nauru will likely hit Vietnam with severe winds and rain, causing flooding and landslides throughout the central provinces. Vietnam's National Committee for Disaster Response and Search and Rescue has forecast that Nauru will be the most powerful typhoon to hit Vietnam in 20 years. Typhoon Nauru is expected to weaken later in the week before heading to Thailand. We hope everyone in the region stays safe. Definitely, Andrika. Going back to UNGA, President Joe Biden and Marcos Jr. also met on the sidelines of the General Assembly. During their bilateral meeting, the two leaders affirmed their support for freedom of navigation and peaceful resolution of disputes regarding the situation in the South China Sea, with President Biden reaffirming the U.S. commitment to the defense of the Philippines. The two also touched on energy security, infrastructure, regional issues, and the crisis in Myanmar. President Biden further added to Marcos Jr.'s speech on food security, adding that the Philippines was among the first U.S. allies to quickly condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Overall, Marcos Jr.'s meeting with Biden indicates that strong U.S.-Philippine relations is central to Manila's development and security agenda. If you want our takeaways from any other UNGA one-on-ones, check out this week's newsletter. I'm looking forward to reading that, Karen. And you know, the General Assembly wasn't the only group that Marcos addressed in New York. Oh, there's more? That's right. Marcos Jr. also courted foreign direct investment at the New York Stock Exchange. For context, while the Philippines ranked last in the ASEAN 5 for cumulative FDI between 2010 and 2020, it benefited from record high inflows in 2021. Marcos Jr. hopes to sustain that momentum by promoting a new investment climate friendlier to foreign standards. To that end, he met with senior executives from New Scale Power, Waste Fuel, and Boeing, indicating that he plans to prioritize aviation and energy in his approach to economic issues. 
Okay, that was a lot of news on the Philippines. <laughs> it really was. Let's turn to Malaysia for a second before we wrap up. Karen, what's new in Malaysia's political drama? Well, last Friday, a Malaysian high court found former Deputy Prime Minister Ahmad Zahid Hamidi not guilty for corruption or abuses of power. While the UMNO president has overcome a huge hurdle, Zahid still has plenty of obstacles ahead. First and foremost being another criminal case in Kuala Lumpur's high court, which alleges corruption and money laundering. Zahid needs another acquittal if he hopes to challenge Prime Minister Ismail Sabri Yaakob as UMNO's standard bearer. If you want a deep dive on Malaysian factionalism, listen to our last episode with Sophie Lemire, or check out her most recent commentary addressing Malaysia's kleptocracy on CSIS's website. And one last development from Malaysia before we sign off. On episode 11 of Southeast Asia Radio, we highlighted the proliferation of job scams across Southeast Asia. Following a viral video of the cremation of a Malaysian victim who died after falling prey to one of these job scams, the Malaysian government has created a special committee to repatriate its citizens from scam syndicate centers in Cambodia, Laos, and Myanmar. Going forward, we're tracking whether Malaysia will bring the issue to ASEAN and how the bloc might address it. We'll definitely keep an eye on that over the next few weeks. And that's it for the news. Up next, Greg and Alina discuss recent data leaks in Indonesia and Southeast Asia's data governance. Hi, listeners. Greg Poling. Uh, I am back after a week off. Thank you so much for your letters and calls. I know you were all worried and missed me. <laughs> I'm joined again, of course, by my partner in crime, Alina Noor, and back by popular demand, Andre Kanadalagabal with the Southeast Asia program here at CSIS. Hey, guys. Hello. Hi, Greg. So today we're going to talk data, uh, digital data standards. And to start us off, I thought maybe Andreka could give us an overview of the current goings on in Indonesia. Thanks, Greg. Suffice to say that data protections and digital privacy is top of the agenda right now and top of the headlines in Southeast Asia and in Indonesia in particular. Earlier this month, a hacker by the name of Bjorka announced that they were in possession of electronic SIM registration data from Indonesia, as well as information and data collected from other Indonesian state agencies. This is obviously a significant issue for Indonesia, which has seen a number of cyber attacks and breaches over the past few years. The government has responded by passing its long gestating personal data protections privacy legislation. But this is obviously just one step forward in terms of boosting Indonesia's cyber resilience. So data protection and data privacy and data governance is top of mind again. So here today, we're here with Alina Neuer to talk about what the landscape looks like in Southeast Asia right now. Right. So, Alina, over at your home base at the Asia Society Policy Institute, you published a pretty robust report earlier this year with Mark Manantan from the Pacific Forum called Raising Standards, Data and Artificial Intelligence in Southeast Asia, where the two of you went 10 chapters, two per country for Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand, and Vietnam on data standards and AI standards. So given the historically large data breach in Indonesia and the ensuing data privacy law, what are you thinking about? Well, so it's not just Indonesia, right? To be fair, my own country, Malaysia, has suffered a number of pretty significant breaches. And unfortunately, the government there has basically brushed it off, saying it's not a national security issue. And I think in some way, this speaks to the mindset of leaders and other stakeholders in Southeast Asia about data protection and cybersecurity in general in Southeast Asia. And that is, there is awareness that these breaches happen, that there is a risk. But on the other hand, it's often dismissed as not so serious or so pressing. 
which sits in odd contrast to the massive emphasis that's given to the digital economy in Southeast Asia. So I think while there's growing understanding that something needs to be done to protect people's data, to protect the cybersecurity environment in general, there's not very much talk about these issues beyond a very narrow focus of the digital economy in Southeast Asia. On the report, what Mark and I tried to do is to broaden that conversation beyond this narrow focus on the digital economy to talk about issues of equity, of inclusion, and how they play into standards that are being shaped or not being shaped as the case is in the region. So Andrake and I both were were two of the authors on a report we did earlier this year on uh, the digital economy portions of the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework which has some overlap with your report, although not nearly as as good, <laughs> as well-researched no, that, on this issue. Of the, the reason I bring that up is because one of the things that, that I think we came to in working on that report is this tension within the region, and, and it's more explicit in some countries, Indonesia and Vietnam in particular, between cybersecurity concerns and concerns about growth within the digital economy. And they certainly hear from tech companies both abroad and at home, I think, that more regulation equals less digital economic growth. And particularly among COVID, you don't want to miss this digital economy train because it's it's the wave of the future. Right. So how are governments supposed to balance this need to prevent the exact kind of massive data breach we just saw last week in Indonesia with the, the demand signals they're getting from uh, digital economy firms? It's a tough act, right? And I think Indonesia and Vietnam provide the most stock examples of that for different reasons. So Indonesia, of course, has just rolled out its data protection law. Thailand also recently rolled out its data protection law in July. And I think that was mainly due to long-standing signals from the business community that there needs to be some sort of clear regulation about where companies stand or don't stand in the digital economy. But there's also recognition by the government that the idea of data needs to be protected. And with Vietnam, Vietnam, of course, is part of the CPTPP, and it has to figure out a way to balance what people are calling data localization, trying to liberalize that regulatory environment to fit in with its obligations in international trade arrangements. So no straight answer to your question, Greg, but I think governments are trying to figure this out as they go along. The interesting thing about CPTPP is it had for its day what were considered cutting edge digital provisions. And I've heard quite a bit of chatter over the last couple of weeks that Vietnam, now that it is finally implementing its long delayed cybersecurity act, is in violation of its obligations under CPTPP, which bans data localization in most cases, among other things. And I suppose there's a question about whether or not the Canadians or one of the others who are still in the agreement, the US is not, are going to be willing to actually do something about it, bring Vietnam before arbitration. But does this also kind of raise this concern that whether it's CPTPP or IPEF or DEPO or some other future digital agreement that countries in Southeast Asia who pursue more rigorous data privacy, data security standards, maybe data localization standards are going to find themselves on the wrong side of kind of the weight of trade liberalization measures? So Vietnam has an adjustment period, right, of a few years. So I think it's still within that time frame. And the Vietnamese government is probably trying to grapple with how to stick to it, CPTPP obligations, without completely violating them. I don't think the time for for any punitive action is right now. 
in terms of what you said with regard to Canada and Vietnam. But I do think it is an opportunity for Southeast Asian countries to think more creatively and innovatively about how they want to create their digital futures, what kind of standards they might want to contribute to as they chart their own paths in this digital economy landscape. And that's kind of what our report gets at, that maybe it's time for Southeast Asia to stop modeling so many of their regulations on the usual models that are out there, whether it's GDPR, which Indonesia's data protection law is very heavily based on, as are a number of other data protection laws in Southeast Asia, and think a little more laterally about what it means to have an organic indigenous flavor to whether it's data regulation or ethics in AI, which our report also touches on. I think we're so used to in Southeast Asia looking at models in the global north that we've almost become blinded to some of these other models that are taking place or that are being developed in other parts of the world, whether it's in in India, South Asia, a little controversial, I understand, but also in parts of Africa and Latin America. And those are exchanges that I think would be really useful to have, given some of the similarities that we're facing in each of these regions. So I am sitting here in the global north, and my cognitive frame for this may be wrong. The The frame that I have in my head is that arguments around the digital economy, digital standards right now basically break down into the American-Japanese camp, which is as little restriction as possible on the free flow of data in order to encourage growth and absolute prohibitions on things like forced data localization, transfer of source code, etc. On the other side of that spectrum is the Chinese model of digital sovereignty, of course, forced localization and forced transfer of source code and force whatever else we want in the name of control, of sovereignty, of creating walled gardens online. And then somewhere in the middle is the European model, the GDPR model, the General Data Protection Regulation, which does not generally support forced data localization and the like, but does have restrictions, particularly reciprocity on data flows based on higher digital privacy standards and consumer protection, which is the model that, as you said, Indonesia, Thailand in particular, have been, been modeling themselves on. So is that tripartite framework? And I guess there is a way to kind of bring the European and American models together, or at least deconflict them, but you can't really bring the American and Chinese models together. Is that overly simplified? Is there some other, it's not really a middle way, because I already described three. Is there a fourth way <laughs> that, that countries can find? So I think there's an argument to be made, others have made this too, uh, a lot more articulately than I'm about to explain, that some of the Chinese provisions in their laws actually are very similar to the GDPR. So I don't know that that tripartite framing is as you've put it. I think there are overlaps in different areas. Of course, the U.S. data landscape is so fragmented. We're not sure if there is even one, right? Right. Virginia and California right. effectively now have a European-style GDPR regime. Right. And so the gold standard, quote-unquote, in data protection seems to be the GDPR. But GDPR proponents themselves will say to you that not all their provisions are applicable to different countries, different markets in the world. The concept of privacy, for example, how do you apply that to a very community-based society, right? And this came up, actually, um, as part of the research for this report, in terms of how difficult it is for privacy commissioners, data protection commissioners, like the one in Malaysia, to explain the concept of privacy 
to, you know, an elderly lady in some village in Malaysia who thinks that actually not having privacy could be a good thing because everybody should know each other's business for safety and security reasons. And that's a very different conception of what safety, security and privacy mean. So there are all these concepts, ideas that are mapped onto, grafted onto local legislation, regulatory frameworks in Southeast Asia that sit almost awkwardly with practices, historical experiences of nations in the region that I think we might need to reflect on a little more carefully. As we're talking about Southeast Asian vision and conception of data privacy and data protection, one of the things that strikes me about your report is the fact that, you know, the five countries that you're covering here, which are Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand, and Vietnam, let alone, you know, putting aside the other five ASEAN countries, all of these countries are approaching this issue in a different way. You know, there's different political constraints, there's different economic considerations, different societal factors. Again, if we're thinking of this notion of a Southeast Asian perspective or vision for data privacy, how do we reconcile all these different individual contexts? And how is ASEAN as an organization approaching these issues? Wondering if you could speak to that. So there are existing ASEAN platforms, I think, that we can begin to have these discussions at. The ASEAN Digital Ministers Meeting, for example, could be a leaders-led conversation on this. But also, you're right, it's very difficult to reconcile some of these differences, variations across the region. The good news is that there is interest in doing that, in at least having that conversation. But I think it has to start at the national level, a recognition that there are some ideas that maybe need to be rethought and reviewed. The problem, of course, is that every government feels like it's in this race to get to digital, whatever that means, within a certain number of years, to get to as many percent of its population to a certain level of prosperity through the digital economy. And in this race, I think it's often forgotten that this idea of agency, right, that Southeast Asian governments can have agency if they consult more closely with non-government stakeholders beyond the usual suspects, beyond business, beyond you know, quote-unquote civil society organizations, but also to talk to like really unusual suspects, right? And this is something that we recommend in the report, to talk to historians, anthropologists, to understand, for example, what public-private partnership means in the digital future, given that public-private partnerships brought on an era of colonialism and imperialism in the past, which is not so long ago, by the way, in Southeast Asia. So there are all these assumptions that we make about certain ideas that, again, I think we need to rethink in light of our historical experiences, in light of what we've gone through, and in light of where we want to be. So one of the arguments that I've heard from business, from, from U.S. tech companies, is that the specific regulations don't matter as much as the idea that there just be one set of rules. That as burdensome and frustrating as, as all the tech giants swore GDPR was going to be, at the end of the day, they can all comply with it. They can hire whatever many, however many lawyers they need because the European market is big enough that getting access and, and because GDPR is across the continent, that's fine. It's not a patchwork. In Asia, yeah, Google and Amazon, like they're opposed to GDPR style regulations. But I think they would rather have a single set of GDPR style regulations across the Indo-Pacific than a patchwork of, of multiples. And the argument they'll make in public, including early this year at our Indo-Pacific conference, is that... Facebook can afford to hire a team of lawyers in every country in the Pacific. You're not hurting Facebook by not having these regulations harmonized. You're hurting 
small and medium-sized enterprises, women and minority-owned businesses, disenfranchised communities, that even the unicorns of Indonesia can't compete outside the Indonesian market because they can't afford the compliance burden. I wonder how much you buy that argument. Is the most important thing here just maybe through an ASEAN-led mechanism or potentially an APEC-led mechanism like the the cross-border privacy rules that the region come together on some regulation, whatever it is? Or is that just a self-serving argument by big tech? (laughs) I can see it both ways. I think it's certainly easier and convenient to have a uniform set of regulations, right? And there's certainty, it creates a a sense of predictability. But I think in the long term, what Southeast Asians have to ask themselves is, do we want to be derivatives of these developments from abroad? And how does that serve our interests in the long run? If we can afford the time and space to think more creatively about some of these models then maybe we can come up with third, fourth, fifth ways of doing things. There are a mesh of the different regulations that are available out there. And I think we're beginning to see some of that happening in places like Korea, in India, that may not be so amenable to big tech right now, but there are countries in Southeast Asia that are watching these developments in those countries and regions very closely to see if they can find their own path. Is this a role for ASEAN. You know, we hosted ASEAN Secretary General Lim Jokhoi yesterday. You were in the audience. He is about to leave office. And one of the things he noted is that the ASEAN Community 2025 plan is three years out. I mean, it was already delayed from ASEAN 2015, then ASEAN 2020. Now we're at ASEAN 2025. But the fact is that however you frame this, ASEAN's current program of economic integration has mostly run its course, right? The goods Tariffs are effectively zero. It is a single market for goods. Some of the other stuff, financial market, integration, labor, mobility has made some progress. But ASEAN really hasn't taken up the issues of 2022. I mean, we're not talking about a single ASEAN digital marketplace or shared ASEAN standards. ASEAN has been sidelined in this discussion in favor of APEC or other forms of minilateralism like CPTPP. Yeah, and and that's what I lament about ASEAN, right? That there isn't this approach of being ideas-driven, that ASEAN is happy to play by the rules, but hasn't really had the foresight, vision, or capacity to think about either remaking some of these rules or helping shape those rules as they come about. So with regards to tech standards, you know, you rarely see Southeast Asian representation at the highest levels of tech bodies, tech standards bodies. There's some participation in the policy discussions that take place at the UN around norms and rules, but there isn't really this active or even proactive participation. And that's a shame, I think, because if ASEAN keeps talking about agency and strategic autonomy, well, this is a perfect opportunity, especially since ASEAN pitches itself as this robust digital economy waiting to boom. And it's a significant market. Right. We saw that over COVID, actually, numbers of internet users actually grew in Southeast Asia. The economy actually grew. So why is Southeast Asia not seizing the reins of this dragon that's waiting to be unleashed? Right? Okay, maybe a bit of an exaggeration, but just get on it, you know? 
on that point, you know, what are the obstacles in terms of Southeast Asia's greater participation in terms of standard setting, laying out the vision for what data protection regime could look like in the region? Is it a political capital issue? Is it human capital? Is it just bureaucratic inertia? Uh, or is it all the above? Right. So D, right? All of the <laughs> above. But also, I think it's a mindset issue. And there's a sense among many Southeast Asian governments that there are levels of capacity that need to be reached sequentially, right? So we get to this level of cybersecurity capacity, or we get to this level of technological maturity, and then we can start thinking about tech policy. No, you can do all these things at once, right? You can have participation, whether as an observer or something more, if you have the capacity for it, to sit in these different discussions at the international level. You can sit and listen to those discussions and learn through the process. So there doesn't need to be this, I need to do this first before graduating onto this level. And, and I hear that a lot. You know, we, well, we, we're not there yet. So I think apart from options A, B, and C, D, there's also this issue of needing to change people's way of thinking. Would you say that this is an area where Southeast Asian governments actually see their interests as aligned or do they see each other as competitors? I mean, and Indonesia has made no bones about the fact that quite a lot of its digital regulation are focused on promoting its own national champions and keeping out foreign competition. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. And I, I think there are opportunities for alignment. And I think the interest in working towards that alignment is there. So that's the good news. If I were Indonesia with a market size that large, I would probably do the same thing, right? Because I think the thinking is, why should we just be treated as a market to be sold to, to be pitched to, when we, given our market size, can cater to our own domestic economy and grow our own economy in a way that we want to. Are they there yet? I don't think so, not yet, but they certainly have the capability to reach those heights. So I understand, but also I think to be fair to economies like Indonesia and Vietnam, which are often seen as quote-unquote data localization models in the region, they're really trying to liberalize some of their regulations. And you see this in very minute changes in some of their laws in response to business and industry and treaties to government. I just want to zoom out a little bit in terms of, you know, we, we've had this conversation about data privacy regulations and sort of the legal architecture that underpins uh, what we're looking at here right now. But that's just one part of the picture. You know, there's the extent to which the private sector is prepared to comply with such regulations. There's the extent to which regular sort of average citizens are, are understanding the impact that these laws will have or are up to date on sort of digital literacy issues. It's a broad spanning issue here. And I'm wondering what role partners like the United States or, or Japan or Korea might play? Because again, this is a, a broad spanning issue and there are multiple ways to, to get at this in terms of data governance. I think capacity building is obviously a low hanging fruit. And a lot of that is already being done, right? In terms of connecting people, uh, connecting infrastructure. But I think the region also needs to be careful about what it wants. It needs to be clear about what it wants. And in order to explain that clearly, it needs to understand first what it wants. And I don't think that has been fully considered beyond, oh, we need to get to a certain percent of our GDP through the digital economy. We need to get this many people onto the e-commerce marketplace. What that digital future looks like, 
is modeled on what's out there. I think it's an opportunity for Southeast Asians to create in their own minds a different model, a more visionary idea of what a digital future looks like in Southeast Asia, again, based on the unique characteristics of the region. There doesn't seem to be a lot of time for this for some reason in policymakers' heads. Hopefully, people can start thinking about it once they've read our report. Hint, hint. (laughs) (laughs) All right. With that shameless plug, we're going to wrap this episode up. Thank you so much for listening. I am Greg Poling, my co-conspirator, Alina Noor, and happy to be joined again by Andre Kanadlagawa. And we'll see you on the next episode. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Southeast Asia Radio. Feel free to write us with any comments, questions, or feedback at searadio at csas.org, and we'll be sure to answer any burning questions you might have. And we've almost reached our six-month anniversary. Thank you to everyone who has tuned in to us so far. We're still fairly new to the podcast scene, so do us a favor and subscribe, and give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify or whatever streaming platform you listen to us on. Tell your friends about us. Michael Kohler is our producer. Our interns are Nikki Arcado and Mike Tiernan. Our co-hosts today were Greg Poling and Alina Noor. My name is Andrei Kanatsaligawa. And I'm Karen Lee. And we'll see you in a couple of weeks for another episode of Southeast Asia Radio.